This is the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library on WQRT 99.1 FM, Indianapolis. In 1922, Kurt Vonnegut was welcomed to Earth. Over his 84 years, he became a beloved writer known for his unflinching look at the world and an outspoken voice for free speech and common decency. Known for his unique sardonic style, Vonnegut published 14 novels, three collections of short stories, five plays, and five works of nonfiction. In 2022, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library are celebrating Vonnegut's 100th birthday. Join me, Chris Lefebvre, and my co-host, Sam Bannon, as we explore the ways Vonnegut's legacy has shaped the lives of others and continues to make souls grow. From the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, this is the Vonnegutcast. 2022 is the year of Vonnegut at 100, a century of stories. The Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library has a full year of programs and events celebrating the life, work, and legacy of Kurt Vonnegut. In July, we are hosting our 11th annual Teaching Vonnegut Workshop Series. This year, workshops will be 100% virtual and classes are now open for registration at kvml.org. Led by experts in their field and Vonnegut scholars, workshops aim to enhance both public educator knowledge on a variety of topics related to the works, interests, and philosophy of Kurt Vonnegut. Stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials for upcoming announcements about Band Books Week, Vonnegut Fest, and the rest of our 22 events and programs. to the Vonacast. I am your host, Chris Lefebvre, and I am joined by my co-host, Sam Bannon. Today, we are thrilled to have author Ginger Strand as our special guest. Ginger Strand is the author of one novel and three books of narrative nonfiction, and she has published essays and fiction in Harper's, the New England Review, and the New York Times, among other journals and newspapers. Ginger's narrative nonfiction book, The Brothers Vonnegut, Science and Fiction in the House of Magic, was published in 2015 and chronicles the early years of Kurt Vonnegut's writing career at General Electric, all while his older brother Bernard became one of America's premier weather scientists as he discovered how to make it rain literally. Ginger lists her obsessions as hydro infrastructure. Can't believe I... Oh, I didn't say it right. Hydro infrastructure and American Ruins, and Interstate, and hopefully after today, the Vonacast too. Ginger, thank you for joining us on the Vonacast. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. And I think that was hydro infrastructure. I think that's just a typo. Oh, <laughs> but yes. you did say it right. Yeah. Oh my God, what in the ever-loving hell is hydro infrastructure? Ginger, can you tell us that? <laughs> well, that's the infrastructure that brings you your hydro. What could be more interesting oh, like than the, the public system that allows you to have hot showers and cold drinks? Oh, cool. So there's like a, an underground tunnel that we get our LaCroix from? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I didn't know it was natural a natural substance. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, Ginger, we mentioned your book, The Brothers Vonnegut. Um, as we begin the, the show here today, if you had to give like an elevator pitch summary about what that book is about, uh, what would that be? 
Well, it's the story of two brothers, one trying to become a writer and the other one already a famous scientist and how their work influenced and affected each other. Um, it just so happens that one of those brothers was Kurt Vonnegut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we, we mentioned it uh, in that open that we read with the Hydro Infrastruce and, and all. Um, <laughs> that's about, my new favorite word. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say that. It was definitely a typo. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we mentioned, uh, we talked about Bernard learning how to make it literally rain, not like, you know, swiping money off of his hand, but literally making the weather change and making the, uh, you know, as I said, making it rain. Um, how impactful was he in his field? Obviously, a lot of our listeners know Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut, I should say, was incredibly impactful in literature. But how impactful was Bernard um, in that in that field? He was he was very impactful, and he was quite he was you know at the the period um, that my book covers, he was the famous brother in the family. Mm -hmm. um, he was a very famous scientist, and you know he worked for the research lab at General Electric, and his work really laid some of the groundwork for climate science. So, you know, definitely an influential scientist. And uh, what inspired you to uh, to write the book? Was it more so, oh, I'm interested in hydro infrastructure and therefore that kind of led you to Bernard Vonnegut or were you kind of a Kurt Vonnegut fan before Bernard Vonnegut or how did that work? You know, it's, it's funny. It was hydro infrastructure that led me to this story, oddly enough. I was, um, I, I, have a home in the Catskill Mountains, which is where I'm coming to you from today. And I was reading a um, very detailed history of New York City's hydro infrastructure, as one does. <laughs> and um, it talked about this episode in 1950, where New York City got into big trouble because they cloud seeded the Catskill Mountains. They were running out of water. They had not completed the the reservoir system that exists today. So they didn't have enough, you know, storage in their reservoirs to cover a drought. And there was about a year and a half of drought. And so in order to bring down more water, they cloud seeded the Catskills. What ended up happening was a huge storm during which the city had cloud seeded the sky. And, you know, many um, gazebos and things like that were washed away. And people up here got very upset and sued New York City. So I heard about this, or I read about this, and I was intrigued to learn that the person who had invented the method of cloud seeding was Bernard Vonnegut. And then when I heard that he was Kurt's older brother, I started reading some of the early work of Kurt, and it was very clear that there was a connection. And I just got, mm -hmm. I got obsessed, that which is, is generally how I start a book project. <laughs> That is such a badass story. That's okay. So that's what I was looking through your book for was that because there was like, tell me if this is the same story or a later one, but I know there was some kind of conspiracy theorist that they were afraid that these cloud seeders had like knocked a hurricane back into the eastern seaboard or something along those lines. Like it, it, it got really out of hand, the thought that says that man could control the weather. It did get out of hand. I mean, <laughs> and and understandably so, because you know, scientists had just figured out how to harness the atom and, you know, kill with, people. With great consequences. <laughs> yes, kill people in industrial quantities, as Vonnegut always said. So it just it just seemed reasonable to these people at GE and at the military 
that, you know, once you had figured out how to uh, make more rain, you could do all sorts of things. And ultimately, you could possibly produce a mega weapon. You know, a hurricane has more power than a, than an atomic bomb in it. So if you could figure out how to send that, you know, wherever you wanted, you would be all powerful. Yeah, that was that was the really powerful part of the of the book where I was looking back and I was like, good Lord. Yeah, I guess your narrative structure, the, your skill as a writer, very similar to Kurt in the sense that you don't seem careless with your words or your sentence structure. It creates almost a, a feeling of, um, I, don't, I don't want to use suspense. Suspense is the word I'm looking for because you're, you're thinking of what it was like to be new to the world in the late 1940s, early 50s with the nuclear arms race and the tensions between the two nuclear superpowers. I mean, that, that must've been really a heady and interesting time to grow up. It must have. Yeah. And that, you know, that period right after, and this was surprising to me because I didn't know this and still until I kind of dove into the period, but that, that period, those few years after um, the horrible end of world war two were this period of great optimism and hope. And the idea was, you know, war was now unthinkable because nuclear weapons had been invented. And so there would be no more wars and humans would have to sort of, you know, get rid of this silly idea of the nation state and have a one world government. And, you know, there, Kurt and, and Jane actually belonged to the United World Federalists, the group of people who were, you know, trying to create the one world government in which hmm. humankind would exist in peace and harmony. Yeah, Kurt's uh, Kurt's distaste for the entire concept of nationalism is uh, is pretty loud. Yeah, throughout, throughout his works, I mean, Mother Night. Yeah, I was about to say Mother Night especially. Yeah, Mother yeah. Night. He he shouts it from the rafters. You can hear that from a mile away. <laughs> yep, yep, and That's it's consistent. He never changes in that. Yeah. Was there uh there one thing in your research for the brothers Vonnegut? I know you just kind of mentioned this with there being such a period of optimism after. Uh, World War II, but was there something else that really surprised you uh, throughout the research process of of the book? You know, I, I would say that that was the that was the historical surprise. The other thing that you know, I was forced, uh, I was pretty much dragged kicking and screaming by this project into learning something about cloud physics. And science is not my strong suit. But you know, I I just ended up bothering cloud physicists for a couple of years, which was actually a pretty fun hobby. And they explained <laughs> things to me. So it was surprising to learn that, you know, cloud seeding actually works. It does, it did not yield the kind of um, weather control that the generals had dreamt of, or even that the scientists at GE had dreamt of. But you can, uh, you can produce more rain from clouds that are making rain. And I, as part of the research for the book, I went to the, you know, everybody has a conference, right? So the, so the <laughs> cloud seeders have an annual conference. It's called the Weather Modification Association, and they meet every year. And I got a press pass and went to their conference. And then, you know, I could bug a whole bunch of uh, cloud physicists at once. One of the um, people who was there was a representative from Pacific Gas and Electric, 
you know, because, you know, cloud seeding, cloud seeding can cause your clouds to be about 10% more productive of rain than they would have been naturally. That seems to be the settled science at this point. That doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're PSENG and you're running water from the snowpack through your your um, hydroelectric dams, back to hydro infrastructure, <laughs> that's real money. <laughs> oh my God. That sounds like a really cool conference. My uh, Did I tell you my old boss at Taco Bell is now a professional pen maker? And they have a <laughs> no, pen maker. No, you've make- never said that. No, no, I don't think I've ever said the sentence out loud. Uh, <laughs> but my my they have a pen making conference in Chicago every year. And I was like, that's incredible. I want to go to that. Totally, totally want to go. The most hilarious thing about the Weather Modification Association Conference was that about a third of the people who were attending were delayed in their arrival by rain <laughs> now that is ironic that's like a kilgore trout story it is uh, yeah yeah you can't make it up speaking of uh speaking of funny stuff the uh the subtitle science and fiction in the house of magic what underrated progressive rock band did you steal that title from <laughs> yeah that's my own rock band title that's my uh side my side hustle oh you have a side hustle where you're in a, you're in a progressive rock band <laughs> Not really. Oh, I wish. Okay. And actually, I have always thought that if I was in a progressive rock band, it would be called Serial Killer Whales. Nice. Like cereal spelled like the food? No. <laughs> oh, that's what I tried to do in high school. I tried to call my band the Serial Killers, and the, and the people at my Catholic school thought that was inappropriate. <laughs> so we named the band And Feeble you were Matter. like... But it's but it's a homophone, and they were like, "We hate that too." <laughs> there's no way. There's no way I knew what a homophone was in high school. That's an interesting concept. Thinking of band names, because I always come up with terrible band names with my roommates, and they always sound like minor league baseball team names, such as the Pinecone Death Dogs, which I think would be a, a good good band name or minor league baseball team name. Yeah, that would be a great minor league baseball team name. We got I I uh, my I came up with pizza love making for my band, and and they were not into that one either. Interesting, Ginger. Kind of going off of that, um, <laughs> if 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 that's even possible. But um, if if you talk to a cloud physicist at the the weather conference, if they had to come up with a band name related to clouds, what do you think that would be? Oh my God. Sorry to put you uh, on the spot with that. <laughs> probably, you know, something, you know, scientists are pretty literal. So it would probably be something like, you know, uh, rain machine. One word. <laughs> that would be kind of, I, I love how underwhelming that. <laughs> I love how underwhelming that would be. I'd be like, come on. I, I, I remember the word cumulus. Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's a real word, right? I, I remember it that word from word. like not doing well in science. Cumulo Nimble. Oh, that's a great band name. That's you know every song on that album is thirty minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> it's a concept album. Hell yeah, it is. To kind of get get our band name train back back on the the Vonnegut track, um, with with Bernard Vonnegut and Cloud Seeding, as we mentioned, um, what what was his process like, and how he discovered um, Cloud Seeding? Because even though it was now at this point about seventy five years ago, it. Um, even still to this day, at least for me, it seems almost still futuristic that, oh, he can make it artificially rain or snow with something called a cloud seeding. So what was his process like in discovering that? So um, it was very hands-on. 
Uh, it was almost like Victorian science. And you can reproduce this experiment at home. I did when I was working on the book um, because I happen to have a freezer that is at the bottom of the fridge and pulls out, you know, it's a drawer, mm -hmm. freezer drawer. So you take, um, you, you line that with something dark so that you can see what's going on in there. And then you get some dry ice, which someone sent me some Omaha steaks and they come with dry ice. So that's a good way to get dry ice because, you know, it's not just <laughs> lying around at your local shop, right, usually. Just just throw the steaks out and keep the dry ice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, you can use the steaks to celebrate your discovery. Fair, yeah, fair. The, uh, <laughs> you just throw the dry ice into your freezer and it will snow. Interesting. All right. And well, that's I, what I know they what did. I'm doing. You know, they were... <laughs> yeah. They were they were doing all sorts of things to try. They they kind of you breathe first. You have to breathe into the. I forgot the important part. You have to put an atmosphere in there. You have to put mm. a cloud in there. So you breathe into your freezer. Then you can make the snow. That's and they were they were just trying all sorts of different substances to try to you know the technical term is nucleate mm -hmm. the cloud, and which just means give it some little. Um, particles that the raindrops can form around or snow snowdrops and um bernard just went through the you know the crystallography handbook and tried different substances until one worked and that was silver iodide and and he and correct me if i'm wrong because like I, I remember reading this in your book again the ge along with the u.s military and that part i might be wrong about was basically paying Bernard Vonnegut to go up in a helicopter and shoot silver iodide into the atmosphere, basically, right? Yeah, airplane. But oh yes. my god! Yeah, that's yeah. Like, that's you, you just picture picture living through that life experience for a minute. I mean, the first time they did yeah. it, they they literally had the silver iodide in a teacup, and they were like shaking it out the plane window. It's an unpressurized plane. Sounds like Parmesan cheese on a yeah, pizza. exactly. Yeah, yeah except the uh, wind was probably pretty intense up there. Yeah. So yeah. it was, you know, they did this over Mount Washington in uh, Western Massachusetts. And is it yeah, Mount but, Washington? Yeah, Mount Washington I, is in New Hampshire. I, I forget what the name of the mountain is, but that's where they spread Bernard Vonnegut's ashes later on, yeah. too. Yep. So I let me let me look that up because that's kind of. It is Mount Washington. It's just that I forgot what state it's in. Geography, oh. also okay. not my strong suit. <laughs> you should have a whole other podcast on geography. and Podcast and geography, yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously at, at the time in the late 40s, early 50s, when this was all happening, they didn't know as much about climate change and um, just kind of man-made changes to the climate that are possible like we know today. So by them basically blasting silver iodide into the atmosphere, did that have any sort of positive or negative effect uh, on what we now call today as climate change, or did it just simply make it rain a little bit more? Well, the, the cloud scientists today would tell you it just makes it rain a little bit more, mm -hmm. and it's clouds that would have rained anyway. So you can't bring rain to the desert the way people dreamed of doing. You know, you can't, um, you can't make it rain where it wasn't going to rain anyway. You just increase the efficiency of your cumulonimble machine <laughs> i like that you tied in both band names there all in one <laughs> and a nicely wrapped rain package that was good 
what was uh what was something in your research for the brothers Vonnegut that surprised you? Uh, sub question: Was there anything that didn't surprise you at this juncture? Well, what didn't surprise me, but that but that's a story that people always love is how crappy a writer Vonnegut was for a long time. You know, he had an apprenticeship <laughs> that would warm the heart of any aspiring writer. He just wrote crap story after crap story. <laughs> and he was and he just worked really hard at it. And he had the he was fortunate enough to have the encouragement and assistance of his wife Jane, who was a very talented editor and who had just full confidence in him. And she just kept telling him, you're going to be one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. And he was like, baby, don't say that. It's really stressing me out. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, that you know, it happened. I think um, I, you, you nailed on two major, major things for the museum in general. Every tour I've ever given, especially to young people, I love pointing out how much flaws and failure played an excruciatingly intense role in Kurt Vonnegut's life to kind of get people away from the helicopter parenting idea that if you're in bed by 10 and you eat all your vegetables, nothing bad will ever happen to you in life. Um, I, I really like that Vonnegut had like the full breadth of unfortunate, but I, I don't like it, but I mean, there's, it's, it's a really, really wild story of mm -hmm. his, of his life. And it involves quite a bit of this isn't cutting it. I, I, I had no idea prior to your book that, um, that Knox Berger had made Kurt write report on the Barnhouse effect. I don't know how many times before allowing him to make $750 off of it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really fascinating to read the back and forth between, between editor and writer, you know, and Knox is totally right. Cause he was good at his job. He was a great editor and he was like, Nope, this sucks. This sucks. Nope. That <laughs> sucks. You know, and to go through they they have a file at, uh, the Lilly Library in Bloomington, Indiana, where Kurt's papers um, are kept, and they have a file called Rejections, and yeah. it's like it, it's again just inspiring to any aspiring writer because you're like, oh, I was rejected by many of the same illustrious journals that rejected Kurt. How much time did you end up spending at the Lilly for uh, for this book? Um, it was actually only a total of about three weeks um, in separate occasions um, because I it's a, a long way from where I am. So I just would go out there and just photograph everything. It's so much stuff. It's, it's so, so much oh stuff. Oh, my God. I, I went down there with Mark Leeds once, and it was the funniest. We were supposed to be researching how Vonnegut fed his family through the 50s and 60s when he was taking every odd job known to mankind and every 15 seconds he'd get distracted by something yeah and yeah that you know he was down there for one day and what you need is three weeks to even get an idea of even to find you know even to find what you need because yeah. you don't really know what you need and there was one point where I thought I was done and then I was talking to Edie Kurt's daughter Edie and she was like, oh, did you see the new box, the latest box I sent them? Because it's got all this GE stuff in it. And I was like, what? And and I had to go back. And I was like, you guys, you didn't tell me that this, this box exists. And they were like, well, you know, it's not been processed yet. So it's not in the catalog. And just don't really, just don't screw anything up. Don't touch anything. Don't get, <laughs> they were really, they, they were unhappy about having to let me look through it. 
and that was actually where I discovered the um, the the charming diary that Kurt made of his trip through the West when he was sixteen. You know, with with his two buddies that no one had seen. I was the first person to see that. It was pretty exciting. Can you talk a little bit more about about what that entailed? His trip to Oklahoma. You know, it was it was. Um, the kind of thing that would never happen with the helicopter parents of today, right? These three 16-year-old boys borrowed one of their father's cars, and they went on this trip out west through many states. And part of the plan was to gather artifacts like arrowheads and things like that for the <laughs> Indianapolis Children's Museum. Interesting. And really, but really, they were just on a road trip. And it's just completely charming. And it's very curt. Like a lot of the, you know, I, I was talking about his long, hard apprenticeship. And indeed, he, you know, it took him a long time to learn how to write a good short story or a good novel. But he had his voice from the very beginning. And the voice is really there in this early piece of juvenilia. Yeah, that letter he writes. That letter he writes back home to his family after the war. Yeah, uh, from the camp in Paris, is yep. horrifying in its combat trauma, and then with every gut wrenching description of what happened to his unit being shot, being cut to ribbons by the German army, he says, "But not me." Like yeah. everybody was killed, but not me. The U.S. Air Force bombed Dresden and killed many people, but not me. It's like that that's an astounding piece of writing from a, it is and that's it's it's almost like the outline for slaughterhouse five in a way yeah which i mean it's he must have been so alone with having to write that book over the course of 22 years yeah while knowing that he had an outline right when he came back from the war <laughs> ginger we we uh we mentioned in the open that you have not only written of course the brothers vonnegut we've talked about now but also three other books uh killer on the road adventure niagara and flight um, among the four that you've written, which was the most fun uh, in your process to write? Well, I can tell you which was the least fun, and that was Killer on the Road. Oh, because... you, don't, you don't like the doors? <laughs> <laughs> I do like the doors. It's a nice, nice connection. Yeah, good job with that. <laughs> Thank you. But, um, you know, it just, after a while, you just get sick of being inside the heads of murderers, and in, and, and you get... And finding a way to write about violence and murder without being salacious was really hard and a struggle. And, um, you know, the perhaps the most fun book to research was Inventing Niagara, because a lot of the research was running around Niagara Falls, um, going on boat rides and scenic, you know, attractions and visiting strange museums and meeting people who had shrunken head collections and stuff like that. In terms of the writing itself, the Brothers Vonnegut was the most fun because it it pretty much wrote itself, you know. Once I had mapped out the story and figured out where it would where it would start and where it would end basically, then it was just a matter of, you know, telling the story. And at, at a certain point I remember thinking I really want to finish this book because I'm dying to know how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think all of all of what you said doesn't surprise me at all, um, especially the part about the serial killers not being fun and the Niagara Falls being fun. Um, so all that said, I think 
I think that's accurate. Not that, not that I'm calling you a liar or anything, but <laughs> it would yeah. be interesting but, if you yeah. were if you were if you were if you were just like you know what I think you're wrong. Yeah, I how, think you had fun you, writing about those serial killers. How, how dare you not be into murder? Um, <laughs> one of the, one of the weirdest parts of aging for me actually is finding out that violent television and movies suddenly out of the blue in the last five years or something like that just gets to me. If I see like a preview for a horror movie, I'll be like, well, I didn't need to sleep tonight. Thanks, preview. <laughs> Interesting. I'm just like, I didn't, I didn't care about that when I was a teenager. It's like, sure, mom, I'm going to watch Natural Born Killers. This is my God-given right. And, and now I'm like, I could have lived the rest of my life without seeing that. Interesting. Ginger, we, uh, we've talked about it now a couple of times, but hydro infrastructure, what being one of your uh, obsessions as you list on your website, gingerstrand.com, um, where did you develop this obsession or this, this, uh, this, I don't, I don't know if hobby is the right word, but interest in hydro infrastructure, because obviously, as you probably know, it's not a very common thing, um, for people to, to be really into. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it partly comes out of, um, spending a large part of my adult life in New York city where, the hydro infrastructure is amazing and you know you you end up thinking about it because where does all that water come from and how does it get to the city and mm. when you learn about it you know and then i'm i happen to be married to uh, a really uh, a big fat nerd not like literally fat but <laughs> you know he's yes. super nerdy and one at one point he was like you know let's go visit our hydro infrastructure. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds like the best vacation. And so we went on this road trip and we visited like the reservoirs and aqueducts of New York City. And then we just ended up like following the Erie Canal. And that, that actually is how I ended up writing Inventing Niagara because we ended up at Niagara Falls touring the power plant there as one does. And... Um, I was just like totally obsessed. Was that pre or post engagement? Did you did you go on that that trip with him and think, oh my god, this is the one? Or were you already <laughs> married at that point? <laughs> now we were we were we didn't get married until we were together for about twenty two years, I think. So speaking of uh, of of your obsessions as well, um, American ruins. Can you elaborate on that? Because that sounds like something I'd be really interested in too. Yeah, I just, you know, when you're driving around the country, which I've spent a lot of time doing in my life, um, there's, there's a lot of ruination. And it's, it's always kind of fascinating to me um, to see what parts of the country have fallen into ruin and why, and to think about, I mean, it's just a different way of looking at history. You know, we tend to think of history as a series of success stories, but I like thinking of it as a series of failures. It's very pessimistic, <laughs> but in a fun way. Well, there's there's a there's a middle ground there too, just as a as a living, breathing thing where the people leave history standing. I I I have that in common with you. We were coming back from the New Orleans Jazz Fest once, and uh, in Osceola, Arkansas, there's an old blues club that Sun Seals and Albert King used to play in. And we went to the one 99-year-old person at the History Center in town, and 
we found that venue and it's dying of natural causes on the side of the road. No one's made any, it's not on Google or anything. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of neat to see it just kind of trapped in the past with the marquee sign falling apart and stuff like that. That was, that was really neat. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't, I mean, I guess it's kind of a failure to not preserve it or even make, yeah. even make a documentation of it. I that yeah. Or if, when you're driving through the West, you know, in particular, if you drive the blue highways instead of the interstates, there's a lot of dying infrastructure there or dead infrastructure, you know, old gas stations and hotels and stuff that are abandoned and falling into ruin. And I can never resist stopping and running around those places. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that. Yeah, I grew up in Anderson, Indiana, which is about 45 minutes northeast of, of Indianapolis. And it's basically like the last suburb of Indianapolis, if you can even call it that. So once you get past Anderson, it's just a whole bunch of fields and real country. And don't you forget Muncie, the greatest. No, town. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Muncie's Muncie's right there, too. But there's there's a ton of just um, rundown barns, basically. So it's almost like all of East Central Indiana is just rundown barns. My dad has semi-joked forever that he's going to create the dilapidated barn foundation to go through and just level all these barns because they're such an eyesore in East Central Indiana. So kind of goes with the American ruins out West and also uh, here in the Midwest. So that's Yeah. And, and that really tells a story about the death of the family farm and the rise of industrial agriculture. Yep. Something that sure freaked uh, Kurt Vonnegut out and player piano. Well, I mean, industry in general at that point where, um, yeah. Ginger, uh, you wrote uh, in your book and we've also kind of talked about it a little bit earlier on this, on this episode, um, about how influential um, Jane uh, Jane Cox at the time, eventually Jane Vonnegut, Vonnegut's first wife, was, and Vonnegut uh, becoming a writer. Um, who were some of your biggest influences to uh, become a writer now have published four books? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, probably uh, many of my professors in college, um, because I went to a a small liberal arts college in the Midwest, um, Kalamazoo College. And a lot of my professors there were writers in addition to being professors. And I just thought that was really cool. And, you know, I never wanted to be anything else. I, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was able to read, I think. So probably the children's book authors that I read obsessively as a kid, you know, mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis, <laughs> People like that made mm -hmm. me want to be a writer more than any more than anyone else. Yeah, the uh, to hop on that question as well. Um, you know, Jane Cox Vonnegut plays a major role in um, in your book, and she sounds like such a fascinating character. She's actually at the top of my list as far as Vonnegutian people that I would kill to just hang out with <laughs> for oh, yeah. a little while and get to know because she was obviously the straight A student that was also enjoyable to be around. Um, <laughs> Right, Are right, you right. Straight A students aren't enjoyable to be around. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just laying out some of my biases here, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah. What, what are your thoughts on Jane Cox after having researched uh, such a subject matter that deeply involved her to a certain degree? Yeah, you know, it was one of the more difficult things in writing the book, actually, because you know all of all of Kurt's letters to Jane exist. Jane's letters to Kurt do not. It's kind of the, the same old sad story that happens over and over again in history um, with women and their stories just kind of getting lost. 
Um, but fortunately, uh, her children, Edie and Mark and Nanette, were um, available to talk to me and to kind of bring her to life in a, in a lot of ways. And it was clear that she was hugely important to Kurt. But, mm-hmm. you know, you had to kind of look at it by looking at his letters to her. You know, it was like you're hearing one side. It's like hearing someone talking on a cell phone on the train. You can usually figure out what the conversation, how the conversation is going (laughs) Mm -hmm. and what the person on the other end is saying. But, you know, it's frustrating not to hear both sides. So, but she just seemed like a really wonderful and quirky and smart person. She also wrote a book um, that's kind of a memoir uh, in her later years. And that, that was helpful in kind of getting her voice in my head. Yes. Uh, angels without wings. And we, we actually own as the museum, we own about eight copies of that book and, uh, they will be for sale eventually. Not yet, but we, we are working on that. We do have those in stock. So yeah, the, um, man, someday, someday I I always tell people on tours that I'm going to write a book about Jane Cox Vonnegut, who was a good student in English lit worked for the precursor to the CIA and then went to go to the university of Chicago to get her master's degree in Russian literature, because God knows (laughs) what a great U S spy she would be in a (laughs) fan. Oh my God. In a fan fiction novel, that would have been amazing. United States spy Jane Cox Vonnegut. I love it. Yeah. I I think that's going to be a really fun book. Yeah. Well, now I think we can uh, transition into the speed round. Uh, Ginger, this will consist of 10 rapid fire questions. We will alternate Vonnegut questions with general questions. Uh, Just say the very first thing that comes into your mind. Ginger Strand, are you ready for the speed round? All right. I'm trying not to be stressed out. Okay. Oh, we're I'm we're ready. hoping we're hoping you experience the opposite of stress. This should not yes. be stressful. <laughs> I hope this is a hope this is a euphoric speed round for you. And uh, if you're not all that speedy, no worries, because I don't think anyone has been speedy so far uh, <laughs> on the first four episodes of the of the Vonicast. But let's go ahead and, and get started. Okay. So first question: Player piano or cat's cradle? If you had to choose a favorite one, cat's cradle. You're on a deserted island, and you can only choose to listen to one song. What song do you choose? Um, the Trapeze Swinger by Iron and Wine. Imagine you're taking a BuzzFeed quiz. Are you more Dr. Paul Proteus or Dr. Ed Finnerty from Player Piano? Oh, Paul Proteus. Do you prefer Chicago-style pizza or New York-style pizza? Oh, my God. Is that even a question? Yes, New yes. New York all the way. Thin crust. <laughs> I even wore my... I, you, obviously, people can't see me, but I'm wearing my Frank Schmidt Cubs jersey today, so hopefully... I was hoping that would kind of shoot you in the direction of Chicago style, but so it goes. Um, is your, is your, She's talking from New York right now. I know, yeah. I was hoping it would kind of bring some good vibes, but, you know, oh well. Um, is your writing process more similar to Kurt Vonnegut's or to Kilgore Trout's? Kilgore Trout. If you could write a book about any subject, what would it be? Well, that's kind of an odd question because that's what I've done in my career is write a book about whatever obsesses me at the moment. Oh, okay. So we should have rephrased that. What's your new obsession? Anita Luce. Anita Luce? Yes. Hollywood's first screenwriter. Oh my God. And the author of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Which Vonnegut book is the most pertinent today in 2022? Oh, that's brutal. Slaughterhouse-Five. One of the great anti-war novels. Uh, Your most hidden talent. 
Um, I am really good at foraging for mushrooms. <laughs> that is that is probably a hidden talent. Um, it has to be hidden because yes. you never you you always hide your good sources of <laughs> you know chanterelles or black trumpets. The uh, the one thing you would say to Kurt Vonnegut if he were here in the room. Thank you. And then the final question here in the speed round. Chris, my co-host, he's my best friend, but I'm not his best friend. Do you think I will ever get to become his best friend? That really depends on how you comport yourself, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, well, it does. One of these well, days, I'll get you. He's from <laughs> he's from Anderson, and I went to college in Muncie. We're we're close. 30, yeah, thirty minutes we're away. We're close basically. geographically. It's it's funny you mentioned uh, hunting for morels. I went last time I was up in Muncie. My friend Frank Reber, who owns the Caffeinery, a really good coffee shop uh, in Muncie, he mentioned that back in the day they would uh, they would do paintball um, in the woods. And they're like the worst days were the days when we'd actually accidentally nail someone who was hunting for morels. Oh no! <laughs> and I just thought that would be the funniest slash maybe a little painful but also really funny thing. Yeah, well, it's better than the actual you know hunter mistaking you yeah. for a deer. Yeah, better to be shot by a paintball than. <laughs> yes. Well, Ginger, as we as we wrap up this episode of the Vonacast, we like to uh, end in the interviews with this question. Um, Kurt often gave advice to the next generation, to the to the young folks of the United States and to the world. Uh, what is your advice for young people today? That's a tough one. I mean, I think that the most important thing to tell them, and I think Kurt would agree with this, is don't lose hope. I like yeah. that. Yeah, he was he was very adept at seeing the the beauty and things that we sometimes. Um, run over at times in life like a mm. chocolate chip cookie like you can sit there and be like this isn't an oatmeal raisin there's, there's beauty in this there's beauty and in it this. gives me hope for humanity yeah. Yeah. they invented Brace. oatmeal raisin cookies and hydro infrastructure what about hydro infrastructure does that give you hope okay so that's a you progressive know, rock <laughs> yeah. it, it yes. sounds a little bit like a like a special kind of german pastry like a hydro strudel yeah, like you you eat the strudel and it's got water and <laughs> it's water water filled, water and sugar. What a great combo! <laughs> uh, Ginger, thank you so much for your time and joining us here today on the Vonacast. To see and hear more from Ginger, head over to gingerstrand.com. Her book, The Brothers Vonnegut: Science and Fiction in the House of Magic, can be found at kvmlshop.org. Ginger, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. It's been fun. And until next time, Vonnegutians, stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials for more exciting episodes coming soon. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. Into this house we're born. Like a dog without a bone and actor out alone. Thanks for listening to the Vonacast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Ginger Strand. For more on Ginger Strand, check out gingerstrand.com. And stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials at Vonnegut Library for all of our events and programs, including new episodes of the Vonacast coming soon. The Vonacast is a co-production by the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library in WQRT, Indianapolis. Special thanks to our guest, Ginger Strand. The Vonacast is produced by Fiona Duffy and Drew DeSimone. Audio mix and editing by Nick Corey. Cover art by Rusiak P. Vaitsyan. 
Bonacast episodes and all other KVML programming can be found on kvml.org and on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vonnegut Library.